This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up. In June 2015, an auction house in Nuremberg, Germany, made headlines for a group of 14 small works sold for a sum of around $450,000. They were a mix of drawings, paintings, and watercolors, and honestly, they were fairly lackluster, artistically speaking. One of the works alone garnered nearly a quarter of the proceeds, at around a total of 100,000 euros. It featured a pretty standard view of the Neuschwanstein Castle near Munich, which draws millions of tourists each year in the 21st century and certainly raised considerable interest in the dawn of the 20th as well when the scene was painted. But when it comes to art and art auctions, we have to face a truth. A grand total of $450,000 spread out over the sale of 14 separate pieces of mediocre quality at a small auction house in Europe? Really, that isn't a fantastic haul, and it shouldn't have garnered too much media interest. Art auctions by the big houses like Christie's and Sotheby's in major metropolitan areas around the world could sell one single painting for tens of millions of dollars, even hundreds of millions of dollars. And people barely blink an eye unless a financial record is broken. Because art is big business, and quality works of art are practically expected to garner huge sums. But this cash didn't. And yet, it was a big deal. Why? What was so great about them? Well, it actually wasn't about quality or greatness at all. It was more about notoriety, because the artist was one of the most abhorrent human beings in all of history. The artist was Adolf Hitler. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or even more fun than you can imagine. And today, we are going to contemplate the way that fine art inspired, affected, and ultimately molded the man who would become the biggest architect of terror in the 20th century. Welcome to a new season of the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. In this second season of the Art Curious podcast, I'll be guiding you through a number of episodes in which World War II and the art world intersect. In episode number 21, the first in the season, we began with an exploration of the ways in which war and art have always been connected, and how World War I and the era leading up to the Second World War produced a number of artists and art movements that engaged directly with the political and cultural themes swirling around and in Europe. Today, though, will be a reflection that moves even closer to the Second World War through a discussion of Adolf Hitler himself 
who aspired to be a successful artist long before he ventured disastrously into the political realm. Before we begin, I just want to note that some listeners might find today's episode bothersome, as it narrates Hitler's early life in a way that shows him to be an actual human being. I tell it today not to invoke sympathy toward him. I still, and will always, think of him as a manipulative monster who destroyed millions upon millions of lives. But I give it to you today because it is an actual part of Hitler's biography. And art, as we will find out today and in later episodes this season, was integral to Hitler's concepts behind the so-called purification of Europe. Adolf Hitler was born near Lenz, Austria, in what was then part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire in 1889. He was one of six children, three of whom died in infancy, and he was particularly close to his younger brother, Edmund. When Edmund died in 1900 from complications of measles, Adolf was so distressed that his personality seems to have changed considerably. The 11-year-old was once an outgoing, bright child who seemed at least to be somewhat obedient though there are some reports that he was in relatively regular conflict with his father. But after Edmund's passing, Adolf grew depressed, detached, and prone to outbursts both at school and at home. He was troubled. And he was trouble. His family had shuttled back and forth between Austria and Germany in the first decade of Hitler's life, which meant entering and exiting various schools. Shortly after Edmund's death, Hitler's father ignored his son's market interest in the fine arts and sent him to school in Lanz in 1900 with the hope that he would follow in his own footsteps and become a clerk at the Customs Bureau. But as Hitler noted in his infamous book, Mein Kampf, he purposefully ignored his coursework and did as poorly as possible without completely failing, and did so with the hope that his father would come to his senses, seeing, quote, what little progress I was making at the technical school and that he would let me devote myself to my dream. We can see that even at this early age, Hitler was obsessed with getting his way and with manipulating others in order to get it. But the elder Hitler was undeterred by his son's actions. It was only after his father's death in 1903 that Adolf was allowed to leave the technical school and pursue his own path. He ceased all traditional education in 1905 and set out on his own with no plans of continuing his schooling, nor any real direction towards a career. His only hope was to become a successful artist. But to his poor mother's dismay, he actually did little to bring this dream to reality. For nearly two years after he dropped out of school, he spent days wandering lands, living a life of leisure on his mother's dime taking in operas and concerts and visiting museums and art galleries in the afternoon after he slept the morning away. At night, after a day roaming about, he would return home and stay up late to sketch or read about art, German history, Norse mythology, and any other topic that struck his fancy. Adolf Hitler would later describe this period as among the very happiest in his life. In early 1907, Hitler convinced his mother to provide him with money to make the journey to Vienna, Austria's wealthy and glittering capital city, almost 200 kilometers to the east of his hometown. This is where all the big things were happening. All the best music, the best dancing, and of course, all the best art. Hitler was immediately entranced, and like many people do when they first aspire to become a working artist, he made the decision to get out of Dodge and move to the big city. That's where the art schools are, the like-minded creators, and most importantly, the commissions and the money. 
It was the first act of direction that the mostly directionless young man had ever achieved. At 18 years old, Adolf Hitler found himself living in Vienna, funding himself again through his mother's support and from benefits received after his father's death. But those benefits didn't get him very far. As Peter Scheldahl, the arts critic for The New Yorker magazine, wrote, Hitler was, quote, one of the city's faceless, teeming poor. He often slept in a squalid homeless shelter, if not under a bridge. He received work for a short time as a day laborer, but found that he wasn't built for such physical activity. He was too thin, too weak. But it wasn't only that. He also didn't want to have this workaday lifestyle. Why hold down a meaningless job toiling day in and day out when you could pursue your lofty goals? So he went for it. He began creating art for the sole purpose of selling it. At the beginning, he went down the souvenir route and began making a scant living by painting and drawing postcards for tourists who were enjoying Vienna's sights on their grand tours. He supplemented this meager income with commercial jobs, mostly painting houses. But again, the physical aspect of the job, combined with his incessant boredom, had become just too much for him, and he was ready to really take his art to the next level. That's coming up after the break. Hi, Art Curious folks. I want to share a special offer for you today. For listeners of this show, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their awesome service. Two books that are currently fascinating me are Provenance, How a Con Man and a Forger Rewrote the History of Modern Art by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo, and The Ugly Renaissance, Sex, Greed, Violence, and Depravity in an Age of Beauty by Alexander Lee. You can find these, as well as the biggest bestsellers like The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins or Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty, and thousands more. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your free audiobook. This episode is also sponsored by 80 Fresh. 80 Fresh is a service that offers delicious, fresh, and healthy meals in a convenient kit delivery with most of the prepping done for you. As a busy mom slash podcaster slash full-time art curator, that means that I don't have to worry about prepping and shopping and taking too much time away from the good stuff. Every week, you have the chance to experience a delicious new menu with options like Korean barbecue beef, tacos al pastor, and my favorite, coconut curry shrimp. And from the time you open the box to the time you set the dish on the dinner table, you're looking at 10 minutes or less. If that sounds good to you, you are going to want to try 80 Fresh too. Art Curious listeners can get a special discount by using the offer code ARTCURIOUS when you order at 80fresh.com now. That's 80fresh.com. Promo code ARTCURIOUS, one word. 80fresh. Tasty, healthy, simple. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Art Curious. Young Adolf Hitler, even from an early age, had a profound interest in drawing and frequently whiled away class time by doodling. Early on, his teachers identified him as being somewhat talented in this regard. But remember that he was also an uncooperative, unmotivated, and a morose student, so his teachers found it useless to convince him to work hard at much of anything. But the story goes that he could produce realistic and detailed imagery from memory, especially of architecture, which interested him most greatly. Most importantly, he had self-confidence. Whether or not it was a delusion is a separate issue. But he thought, and knew really, that he could be a great artist. He just needed to go out and make it happen after some hardcore training. So in 1907, he took this first big step towards becoming a quote-unquote real artist and applied to the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna, a well-respected art school that was founded over 200 years prior in the late 17th century. Originally a private institution, the Austria-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph first allowed for public governmental funding for the school beginning in the late 19th century, which opened its doors to a wider number of students from various walks of life, though women weren't allowed until the 1920s. For decades, it was considered the top authority on the arts in all of Austria, producing some of the most famous artists and professors of that time. Adolf Hitler wanted that intense instruction and improvement that traditional arts education would provide. And, to be fair, the cachet of attending the preeminent arts school of the country? That wouldn't hurt either. Certainly, the situation seemed like an improvement to Mama Hitler, who was flummoxed and worried about her son's aimlessness. A school with an actual curriculum would be good, she thought. And it was nice to have one less thing to stress about particularly since, during this time period, she was gravely ill with breast cancer. Adolf was horribly concerned with his mother's well-being and nearly returned to Lambs with the intention of caring for her. But his hope of becoming a truly great artist just took over. Plus, his aunt had recently provided him with a loan of over 900 kroner to support his artistic development, which, according to Ian Kershaw's book, Hitler, 1889-1936, Hubris, was the equivalent of nearly a year's salary for a lawyer or a doctor in Vienna at that time. Who in his right mind would want to give that up? In October 1907, Hitler sat for the two-day entrance exam for the Academy of Fine Arts. This was actually the second step in a lengthy and grueling admission process. Hitler had cleared the first step by presenting what he called a, quote, thick pile of drawings to the selection committee. Upon seeing an overview of what the young artist could achieve, they granted him the ability to attend the entrance exam itself. For the October test date, Hitler was one of over 100 men allowed to sit for the exam, which consisted of two sessions of three hours each, for six hours in total of creating drawings on specific themes, usually historical or religious in nature, in a nearly non-stop time frame. It was a long and hard process, and one that ultimately would yield only a small percentage of successful applicants. Out of over 100 prospective students, only 33 would be allowed entry into the academy. Adolf Hitler was totally certain that he would be one of them. As he wrote in Mein Kampf, quote, I was convinced that it would be child's play to pass the examination, 
I was so convinced that I would be successful. But he wasn't. And as Hitler later wrote, his rejection by the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna came as such a shock that it was like, quote, a bolt from the blue. The brief unofficial response given to him simply stated that his test drawings were, quote, unsatisfactory. Art historian Michael Liversidge, an emeritus dean of arts at Bristol University in the UK, was one of a few scholars who actually was able to study similar drawings by Hitler that were created in this time period when a portfolio of these works came up for auction at an auction house in Ludlow, Shropshire in April 2010. These drawings were intended to give a well-rounded look at the artist's style, techniques, and handling of various subject matter, including landscapes, still lifes, and then the human figure. As Liversidge noted to the UK's Telegraph newspaper, quote, They look rather typical of an aspiring student hoping to get into art school. Tentative and not quite certain about his perspective when he's using pencil and pen, making basic errors by getting the top and the bottom of the still life wrong in relation to each other, and so on. And he doesn't yet know much in the way of technical skill. But it's not so bad that one can't imagine him learning, especially when he's bolder with the charcoal or the black chalk. But there's no latent genius here, and probably if the artist was at school today, you wouldn't encourage him to keep the subject up." Unquote. Hitler was not only super disappointed by the response, but he was badly shaken and very angry. And he wanted a real answer for his rejection. So he went to the rector of the academy for a face-to-face meeting. As Hitler himself narrated in Mein Kampf, quote, When I presented myself to the rector requesting an explanation for my non-acceptance of the Academy School of Painting, that gentleman assured me that the drawings I had submitted incontrovertibly showed my unfitness for painting, and that my ability obviously lay in the field of architecture. For me, he said, the Academy School of Painting was out of the question. The place for me was the School of Architecture." But for Hitler, architecture, though he loved to draw and design buildings, was never in the plan. He wanted to be a fine artist, creating incredible works of art to influence the world around him. Architects just didn't have that same kind of influence, he thought. On top of all that, the School of Architecture was even more rigorous than the Academy of Fine Arts and required a completion certificate for secondary education, something akin to a high school diploma. And as he did not finish high school, this was a total no-go. So he found himself at a loss for the first time in his life, and he was so embarrassed and disheartened that he apparently kept the news of his rejection a secret from everyone, even his mother, who ended up dying less than three months after and never knew of her son's great defeat. It appears that Adolf Hitler thought that his rejection from the Academy of Fine Arts was a fluke, a one-off, and that at a different time and perhaps with a different admissions committee, things might have turned out better for him. So, in the following year, 1908, he requested the opportunity to sit for the strenuous two-day exam again. But this time, he was rejected outright, on the first ask, and didn't even make it to that second step in the process. Again, Hitler was told that he was unacceptable as a fine artist. He just didn't have the stuff, not even to be a student. Faced with two rejections from the Academy in the span of one year, as well as the devastating loss of his mother, one of his only true believers, Hitler was reeling. The fulfillment of my artistic dream, he later said, seemed physically impossible. 
there have been theories over the years about how and to what extent Hitler's denial of access to the art school affected him. One of the most prominent theories is that his rejection was the very first moment that sparked his hatred of Jewish people and his wish to, quote-unquote, purify Germany and Austria. This idea was put forward by one of Hitler's closest friends from his youth, a man named August Kubizek, known to Hitler as Gustl. Gustl and Adolf were old pals from Lanz, but eventually became roommates in Vienna during a period when Adolf was vying for the spot at the Academy and Gustl achieved a spot at the Vienna Conservatory of Music, studying to be a conductor. In 1908, after his second rejection from the Academy, Hitler found himself out of money and unable to pay rent on his room. He became homeless and abruptly broke off his friendship with Gustl for an unknown reason. Perhaps, as with his mother, he was too embarrassed and distraught to admit that he was an artistic failure. Gustl and Hitler later reconciled, more than 30 years later, after Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933. After the war, Gustl released his memoirs, titled The Young Hitler I Knew, published for the first time in 1953 and translated into several languages. In that book, Gustl noted his claim that Hitler's unabashed hatred of the Jews stemmed from the Academy's rejection, as there were Jewish professors and scholars on the acceptance panel. But as several historians have pointed out over the years, this is likely a myth and an altogether too convenient explanation. In his own writings, Hitler himself never made mention of Jewish people being to blame for his rejection. And for someone who had such a high regard for himself, it seems he would have been quick to pin the blame on someone else if he could. Also, Gustl's own memoirs were edited down several times before their 1950s release, and there is apparently no mention of this theory at all in the earlier drafts. It may be very well the case that Hitler himself, as well as his cohort and close friends like Gustl, simply used this theory as a way to further indict the Jews of purported wrongdoings. In essence, this could have been Hitler's own way to excuse his horrible actions that led to the Holocaust, a kind of they-brought-this-on-themselves skewed mentality. But really, it is far more likely that he developed this malicious mindset because of where he was living at the time. Vienna, at the beginning of the 20th century, was a well-known hub of religious prejudice and anti-Semitism. Racism and fear of immigrants were rampant. Sounds really different from today, right? A negative attitude towards Jews was widespread, and the air in Vienna was thick with acrimony and alienation. Hitler probably absorbed these feelings and ideas, stewing around in them and letting them affect him and his young mind in a lasting way. Interestingly enough, the Academy rejection, even that second time around, did not appear to stop Hitler from attempting to keep his hand in the art world, at least until the start of the First World War. He still painted city views for tourist souvenirs, several of which he sold to Viennese art dealers, many of whom, by the way, were Jewish. As Peter Scheldahl noted in The New Yorker, he actually counted Jews among his friends and associates at this time, and even initially had nothing but positive things to say about them as a whole. Some of these art dealer associates even helped young Hitler find commercial design work, creating posters for various businesses around town. Essentially, for several years, he was working as an artist, even if it only provided him with an extremely paltry existence, wherein he was still moving between being homeless and living in low-rent men's homes. It appears he only really stopped working towards his lifelong goal of being a fine artist when he enlisted in the army at the outbreak of World War I. Even after the First World War, when Hitler moved into politics and away from art, art never really left him. 
and he actually used some of his skills, meager though they may have been, to create campaign posters and to design buildings and monuments to be carried out by architect and Reich minister Albert Speer. His single most successful design? The black, white, and red Nazi swastika flag. All this time, between and during both world wars, he continued painting and drawing, this time as a pastime and no longer as a vocation. But it was a pastime he considered taking very, very seriously. His interest in art changed from being the greatest artist to owning the greatest artworks. And this obsession affected Hitler's orders to his own armies and the places he chose to invade. He even looked forward to after the war, mentioning to his senior council that he fully intended to retire peacefully back to Lens and devote his remaining days to art after he was victorious in World War II. Because Hitler really thought for a long time that he was going to win the war. But fortunately, as we all know, he didn't. And he committed suicide by gunshot on April 30th, 1945, in his bunker in Berlin. Adolf Hitler's hopes of becoming a working artist didn't pan out. But curiosity about this has certainly spawned one of the greatest what-ifs of our modern time. What would have happened if Adolf Hitler had been accepted by the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna? Would he have grown and matured as an artist and improved enough to make a real living? Would he have been preoccupied enough by his studies that an interest in politics would never have crossed his mind? Would a more progressive art school environment have sheltered him somewhat from absorbing the hostility and paranoia of greater Viennese society? Of course, these kinds of questions are impossible to answer. Hitler did fail. And he did become one of the architects of destruction in the greatest war of the 20th century. Luckily, there were actually a whole slew of artists, both professional and beginners, who, like Hitler, also had high hopes of pursuing a creative career at some capacity. And it turns out that a few of them actually used their talents in the name of heroism and the greater good during the Second World War. That's next time, in two weeks, on the Art Curious Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Research assistance by the marvelous Stephanie Pryor. I know many of you are loving our new theme music, and that is thanks to Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Social media help is by the wonderful Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. We are so thrilled to announce that we have a new primary sponsor this season. AnchorLight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills across creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. Please see our website for further details. And you can also go there for images, information, and links to our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. And you can contact us via the website, email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com, 
or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. And remember to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history of the World War II era.